Okay. Third time in Hosea chapter 2. Open up those Bibles as we get started. Okay, so some of my favorite childhood memories were of our birthday parties. My mom loved throwing us kids' birthday parties, and I think especially us three girls, um, before my brother came along. Um, and my favorite one was my first double-digit party. That was kind of a big deal. Uh, when I turned 10, I got to have a boy-girl party. And my, we did this huge feast. Like my parents set up all like the card tables and stuff and all my friends got to sit there and have this huge feast and it was so, so fun. And afterwards we got to dance, which was a first. So I'm thinking this was like 19, so it would have been 1995. So I'm gonna find out who here is my age. The, key, the big song was, Cotton candy sweet as gold, let me see your... Yes! <laughs> and I don't remember all the motions, but if you're in your mid-30s, you loved that song. So it was right when we were like pre-adolescence. Do you remember it? Yeah. Who sang that? I have no idea who sang that. Then there was also the Boys to Men like cassette tape. Oh my gosh. I digress. Anyway, it was this great party. It was this feast. We had such a good time. And as our text opens today, we are opening up on a feast. We're opening up on a party. Um, and it's not the kind of party that the bride of Christ should be at. It is not the kind of feast that the people of God, that Israel should be at. And it is not the kind of feast that Gomer, the wife of loving Hosea, should be at. So um, we are going to start right away in verse 13. So take a second, look at your text. You're looking for that third therefore. It's in verse 14. So now, just like the first two times, we're backing up. We're saying, okay, that therefore indicates it's a rescue of God, it's a response of God. What is, why is he needing to rescue? What is he responding to? We're gonna start with just simple observation. What does this say? Verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, where she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Okay, what has Gomer done? What's going on here? Well, she is at the feast of the Baals. Or in some versions, you'll see it as the days of the Baals. So what's going on here? So we're actually going to picture the scene that this poem is describing. What's going on? Well, they're feasting and they're burning offerings. And what does she look like? How has she presented herself at this feast days? Well, she's adorned herself. She's got on rings and jewelry. And what is she doing there? Well, she's going after her lovers and forgetting me, declares the Lord. So remember, she's a woman of unfaithfulness, possibly a prostitute. So she's going after other men. She's going after her other lovers at this feast. Um, and it sounds, honestly, I mean, if any of you have spent time on a college campus, I mean, this kind of sounds like downtown Iowa City <coughs> on Thursday nights during the school year. She is all decked out for a good time going after her lovers. And you know what? In comparison to our first two texts, this doesn't sound like sneaky or subtly like that first response where she's just like wandering down the runaway path and it doesn't sound forgetful like yesterday this sounds pretty intentional this sounds pretty adamant like I'm out here I go so how does Hosea respond we pick up the text in 
14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. We'll stop there for now. Okay, what does this say? How will Gomer respond? Well, he's, it's like he's saying, look, watch me. That's what I see when I see behold. Look, watch. What am I going to do? I'm going to allure her. To where? I'm going to bring her to the wilderness. How am I going to get her there? I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And what's he going to do once he gets her there? Well, he's going to give her her vineyards. And he's going to make the Valley of Achor a door of hope. Okay, and then how will Gomer respond to that? She shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so that's our first, our first uh, step in the process. So let's say, let's ask our question again. We are still asking the same question. How will unfaithfulness be dealt with? So what, what does this text mean? We've gone from Gomer, now let's go to Israel. Guys, what has Israel done now? What is going on here? Israel, the people of God, are participating in the feast days of Baal. They are going to parties celebrating Baal. Baal is the god of the Canaanites. It is actually pronounced something like Baal, and that would be super annoying. So we're just going to like, I'm addressing, uh, some of you know that, but we're just going to go good old Iowa Baal, okay? <clears throat> so here Israel is celebrating the god of the Canaanites, and she is dressed, the people of Israel, the, the women of Israel, I don't, I don't know exactly what this means, but they would often dress like prostitutes when they went to these um, parties, to these feasts, which is so interesting, considering our metaphor, that she is described as a woman of unfaithfulness. Um, so dressed like a prostitute, I even read like that they would get facial tattoos for these festivals. So let's take a second and actually talk about Baal. What do we know about him? Well. Baal was the Phoenician sun god. He was the god of the Canaanites. Specifically, what they believed about him is he was the god of the sun and agriculture. So the god of land and then the god of fertility. So he was the god of land and the god of life, of people. And uh, he was a pagan god. And so if you remember, when God's people are brought into Canaan, they are told to clear out the land that this was the land that God had for them. And so they would need to clear it out of all uh, foreign worship and of all of their enemies, but they didn't, they failed to do that. And Baal slithered his way into the people of God through a woman, which is ironic, through a woman named Jezebel. She is the one who introduced Baal worship to the house of God, to the people of God. Um, and so we need to ask this question, right? We're, we're trying to become good question askers of the text. Why would why would God's people do that? I mean, why would they worship him? Was it as simple as everyone's doing it? You know, we moved into Canaan and everywhere we look, they're worshiping God or worshiping Baal and it looks fun. So I guess we'll just jump in with them. Or was there even more to it? Do you guys remember when we kind of went through the story of the Bible, what has God promised to his people? Think when God came to Abraham, what did he promise them? land and people but maybe God was slow in making that promise come true maybe it wasn't happening the way that they thought it would 
on the timeline that they wanted to. So maybe they were sick of waiting on God for a people that numbered like the stars in the heavens or land that was flowing with milk and honey. And so they would try and get a blessing for their wombs and a blessing for their land another way. And they would begin worshiping Baal. And do you know how they worshiped him? I mean, this is really messed up, but if you go and study uh, ancient worship of Baal, you would find that at these feast days of Baal, it was an orgy. How you got Baal to do what you want is you prostituted yourself which was common in lots of pagan worship, prostituting yourself on the steps of the altar of, of different gods. We see that in the New Testament. Guys, this was nothing short of an orgy, hoping that as you had sex with whoever was closest to you, you could manipulate this Baal. You would manipulate him, control him. He was controllable, take note of that, by, by giving your body and that's how you would get a baby in your belly and land under your feet. Guys, are you picturing this? The people of God. The people of God rescued from Egypt. This is what they are doing now. Should we ask the question, how did it get this bad? This is a dark scene. So how will God respond? According to our text, how will God respond to Israel at this time. <coughs> Is this that moment where we're kind of like, okay, I don't know if I want to look at this again. I mean, I don't know if this is going to be another hard pill to swallow. Like, is God going to take something else away? What punishment will he be exacting on his people now? Is it more thorn bushes, more loss, more walls, more hedges, more exposure, more hunger? I don't know if, if I can do this. I don't know if I want to look hard into the Bible. Behold, look, watch me. I will allure her. Allure, that means romantically entice. I will romantically entice her and bring her into the wilderness. And when I have her there, watch this, I'm gonna speak tenderly to her. You're going to want to see this. I'm going to pull her away from this perverted version of love, and I want to get her alone with me. And when I have her there, I am going to speak tenderly to her, and I'm going to give her back her vineyards. Wait a second. Give her back her vineyards? How did she lose her vineyards? Oh yeah, he took them away in discipline. In loving discipline yesterday, we saw that God took away her vineyards. He took away what was making her feel productive. And now he's saying, I'm going to give them back. Guys, actually picture this scene. This is such sweet poetry. Picture the romance of this scene. A, a young husband pulling his young wife away, almost like on a honeymoon, to get her alone, right? To get her focused on him, whispering sweet nothings in her ear, speaking tenderly. It's kind of funny how things change, you know? I can picture Matt and I in that scene back in 2006, and now it's like, I get an idea, I'm in the mood, you know? And I'm gonna pull Matt aside, call him Herky. <laughs> and you know what I say? I say, hey, 
want to go get a Big Mac and watch The Office in bed? <laughs> and he's like, oh yeah, we could fall asleep halfway through the first episode. Right? <laughs> That's romance now for Matt and I. I am not kidding at all. <laughs> okay, but this, this is the scene that is being painted for us. He gives her back her vineyards and speaks with kindness. He gets her alone. Guys, yesterday we talked about how there was something redemptive brewing in this situation. And today, don't we also hear and feel restoration? He's giving her back her vineyards. And we start to lean forward a little bit, saying, is restoration coming? What is about to be restored in this scene? And he makes the Valley of Acor into a gateway of hope. Now, I think if we were all honest, we would say, Valley of Acor, no idea what that means. Guess I'll keep moving on. And we could, or we could slow our roll, slow our study process, let our brain lead the way here for a minute, and dig into this. So if you would, please turn backwards to Joshua 7. In Joshua 7, we are going to look at one of my favorite case studies that goes with the book of Hosea. So here's what's going on at this time. I love the book of Joshua. God's people have just entered into the promised land. It's like they're in the foyer of Canaan, and what is right there in their way is Jericho. Okay, the story of our childhood, the walls of Jericho. Here is young pilgrim Israel. They have... They have still, Egypt is like in their rearview mirror, is how I picture it. Okay, and they have come and they have seen God flex his muscles and the walls of Jericho have fallen down. This is the story to top all stories. The people of Israel just marching around the city and then yelling and blowing their trumpets and the walls come tumbling down. This is the story that you tell your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. The story of all stories, the miracle of all miracles. Have you ever wondered what happens right after that story ends? Well, we get introduced to a man named Achan. Starting in, well, so let me just sum this up. So um, God had told the the people of Israel, when when I uh, deliver Jericho into your hands, you are to take none of their stuff. Take none of their devoted items. Do not even mess with it. And then the following battle, they go up against AI. Here they are. Think of the adrenaline. Think of the confidence you have after something like Jericho. And they go and they face AI and they lose. Bummer. They are defeated. And rightly so, Joshua is confused. Wouldn't you be? He has no idea what is going on. What is God up to? And starting in verse 10, the Lord says to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. What is going on here? 
God's people are so confused. They have been defeated. They cannot stand against their enemies. God's promises are looking kind of sketchy. And God comes to Joshua and explains to him, it's simple. It's because of sin. This isn't a question of why do bad things happen to good people. This is an example of consequences to rebellion, to unfaithfulness. And so the story goes on where God leads them to find the man who was guilty of this sin, and his name is Achan, and they pull him out, and here is his confession, picking up in verse 20. Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. The story gets pretty, pretty grim after this, after his confession. He and everyone in on it with him, he and his family, are stoned. They are killed. They get the consequence of their sin. Why is Hosea bringing this up? Why is God, through Hosea, bringing this up to his people? Okay, so if you are Hosea's audience, if you are the people of Israel and you're listening to him explain this, you hear this love story unfolding. You're hearing about how God wants to pull you away with his kindness and speak lovingly to you, and then he brings this up. He brings up a horrible memory. He brings up to the people of Israel, hey Israel, do you remember one of your first acts of unfaithfulness? Do you remember when you first cheated on me and on the covenant? He brings up, hey, remember Achan, when dust from Jericho was still falling, as he is rummaging around the rubble of Jericho's fall, he saw something that he wanted. He saw a cloak and gold and silver. And in that moment, Achan said to himself what so many of us say, God is not enough. I need a little bit more. God that made the walls of Jericho fall, God that has performed a miracle, God who has shown us his strength and his power and shown what happens when we obey, he's not quite enough. I'm gonna need just a little bit more. And how did it begin? He saw, he saw it, he coveted it, he took it. Take us back to Eden, Eve saw the fruit coveted it and took it. Starts right here with what we let fall in front of our eyes. God was not enough for Achan in that moment. He would need a little bit more. He would need money and clothes. Why? Maybe it was some security or some assurance. Maybe it was just that it was beautiful. What's he do with it? He says that he took it and he hid it right below the surface. He took it into his tent and buried it right under the surface of the ground. Achan is telling himself, no consequences, nobody else knows. Achan is saying, it's fine, it's concealed, it's hidden, it's under control. It's fine. 
But see, God is too jealous, as we have seen, to let that remain in the camp of Israel. This relationship needs to get off on a good foot as they enter into the promised land. God is too jealous for his glory to let this go on, and so he calls them out. And how he calls them out is he first doesn't let them stand up against their enemies. He lets them taste the sour taste of defeat once again. But maybe we're confused. I mean, this isn't where we thought it was going. God was starting to show this new face of just like this kindness, a God that was a lot easier to accept. And we're getting so excited as he's speaking tenderly to his bride. But then in this moment of rescue, God brings up a horrible memory. God is bringing up their past mistakes. He's saying, Israel, consider how long and in how many ways you have been unfaithful to me. Man, that'd be a bummer. What a bummer when things are just starting to get better for God to say, hey, hold on. Do you remember the Valley of Achor, which means Valley of Trouble? Do you remember it? Go ahead, look over your shoulder. Remember this memory from long ago. (coughs) Remember your unfaithfulness. Remember your mistake. Remember how long and in how many ways you have been unfaithful to me. You have had split affections. You have had a divided heart. Remember how long you have been hiding your sin right behind the door of your tent and right under the surface of your home. This is a sweet moment right in the middle of the text where we fight the gospel in the Old Testament. We don't need to wait for the end of a talk to remember the gospel or to find application for us. This is God giving us an opportunity right now just in the cadence of the text to say, what do I keep hidden? What do I think is okay because it's behind the surface of my heart? Or what behavior is okay because it's behind the closed door of my house or even my bedroom? There's no consequences. I have it under control. It's not that big of a deal. But God, because he is so good and knows how it would all play out, he knows that that sin will never lie dormant under the floor. It will always grow. Sin always wants more. It's always hungry for more of us, for more of our affections and more of our behaviors. God is too jealous and too loving and too merciful to let it remain hidden. He wants us to confess it and to pull it out. He wants us at times to look back and remember sins of yesterday. He does. He wants us to say, man, I've struggled with this a long time. Or maybe I struggled with that 10, 20, 30 years ago. And if I'm not careful, I'll pick it up again. I'll pick up that cloak and that gold and that silver. How is this the gospel? Because in our text in Hosea, what is it that he says? I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. He says, look back and then move on. Be aware and then onward. Move through the door of hope. That is what I have for you. 
not what you've been doing forever, not for the secret that you have kept hidden for decades. What I have for you is forward, onward. I am the God of hope. God is faithful. Not a new word, not new vocabulary, just something we need to rehearse over and over again. God is faithful. He is faithful to provide a way forward. But sometimes the way forward first needs to be a little bit of a three steps forward, three steps forward, two steps back. Don't be afraid to look back and remember a day of unfaithfulness, a season of hardened heart, weeks of bitterness. Don't be afraid to look back at the painful seasons in your life and consider the faithfulness of God. And guys, this is where my story kind of picks up. I mean, this is when, you know, it's not that we're looking to tie a bow on anything, but this is kind of where I'm living now. I live here on the other side of the gateway of hope, the gate of hope, and I try to just recall the faithfulness of God. I pray that when God speaks tenderly to me that I will hear it. I pray that I will quickly hear it. I pray that God's daily tender language will just bring me to repentance every day. Not storing it up just for retreats and getaways, but that I would have an ear that hears his kindness and his tender language, and that I would find quick repentance. And pretty often, I recall my Valley of Acor. Not obsessively, not every day, but when God invites me to, I remember how far pride took me. I remember the nature of arrogance. I remember the, the mess that my sin made, the chaos that my sin made when I used people, manipulated them, when I needed them to, to puff up my self-esteem. I look back on my valley of Acor and remember what unfaithfulness I am capable of how prone to wander I am. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And guys, I think about the days in so many ways that I say, God's not quite enough. God is great. He is good. And I'll tell you that. But you know what I also need? A new outfit. A cloak. You know what? God is so good. And I'm going to tell you about it. But you know what I'm thinking about in the back of my mind? Man, I wish I had a bigger savings account. Man, I wish I had a mud room. I mean, it's like some silly things sometimes. God is just not quite enough in that way I am like Achan. I love that the God of the Battle of Jericho is on my side, but I also need fill in the blank. I don't stay there. I don't stay remembering the Valley of Achor. I turn, I pivot, and I look at that door of hope and I go forward. I move my gaze to the door of hope. I move my gaze to the feet of mercy. I move near to the husband God who is welcoming me home with a robe in hand. I see the faithfulness of God and I vow to do the same. So let's finish up. How do these verses in Hosea instruct us to live. Application. How do we respond to this text? What do we do? Much could be said, but here's two points that I have prayed over and hope to give us as we leave. 
Ladies, the question to ask ourselves from this text is first, what are we celebrating? What makes us so happy? Are we celebrating the things of the world? Is God going to find us at the feast days of Baal? Celebrating what the world celebrates. The invitation is to confess our weakness in this. Because see, if I don't get away from the feast days of Baal, I'm never going to hear God's voice. Right? I'm not going to hear him speaking tenderly to me. That doesn't sound like he's screaming in the megaphone. When the party is turned up to 10, it's really hard to hear God's tender mercies. And so the invitation for us is to turn down the volume of the world. Could it be as simple as we don't open social media until we've been in the Word that day? Could it be that we confess that, you know what, I'm not going to be able to get over my other lovers this crush is not going to go away if it's still in front of me all the time. So if Amazon is always open on my computer, I'm never going to get over my crush on materialism. Right? If social media is always open, I'm never going to get over this keeping up with the Joneses and this material, materialism. If love shows, if love movies, if I'm binge watching all the time on Netflix, I'm never going to get over believing that what the world says is good love is not how God designs love. If it's always in front of me, if I'm always at the feast days of Baals, I am never going to leave and hear the mercies of God. So what are you celebrating? Is it your IRA and your lake house or even just your golden children? Could we ask God to give us a new heart, making us love what he loves and hate what he hates? And could we walk away to a pure version of love? And secondly, when we hear his voice, can we bravely follow it, leaving behind the world's best offer, and follow God even if it's into the wilderness? Could our encouragement to one another be to not fear the invitation to the wilderness? Sometimes the wilderness is the best place for us. Because according to this text, that's where we can be alone with God. That's our honeymoon with him. Seasons in the wilderness can be the richest for us. That's where we find intimacy, according to this text. That's where we find hope. And that's where we find restoration. That is where God comes and heals what we maybe don't even know needs healing the effects of sin, the bruises, the scrapes, and the wounds that sin leaves. It is so often in the wilderness that we find that healing. The result of us bravely following him into a season of dryness, loneliness, lack of direction, all those things that we kind of group with wilderness, the result of that, according to this, is that is Egypt images. I mean, listen to what he says. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth. So when her love was young and fresh, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, God had pulled his people out of slavery, drawing them out so that he could draw them into intimacy with him, into covenant with them. They needed to put distance between themselves and Egypt. We need to put distance between ourselves and the world, the things that the world is celebrating. 
We need to bravely follow God, trust him enough in the desert, even if it's a long road rather than a straight shot. The long road in the desert is a sweet place to be. Right? We have talked about this, that getting found out is a mercy and getting invited into a wilderness where we can starve our sinful desires and learn to thirst for God. That is a sweet place to be. That is where we learn to live in covenant nearness with him. So ladies, what do we do as we leave today? We move forward. We walk through the door of hope. We learn to recite, to rehearse, to obsess over the good news of the gospel. We walk through that door of hope celebrating like someone who is in young love because we know we remember the Valley of Achor. We know that if left to ourselves in our own way of thinking, in our own way of feeling, we will make a total mess and it will lead to our destruction. But we have a God who is jealous, who is faithful, who is merciful, who is here with us right now, who loves us even though he does not need us. What a beautiful contrast between Baal and Yahweh. Baal could be manipulated by his people. And so they would turn their whole lives around and cut themselves and, and give themselves away as a prostitute just hoping to get love back from a God who doesn't even exist. We have this God, the God of Israel, who does not need us at all. And who doesn't sit back and wait for us to finally get our act together. No, he comes after us. He comes after us and in so many ways and in so many different faces. He shows us his love, his mercy, his goodness. Our God is so slow to anger with us. He is rich in mercy. What is on the other side of that door of hope? If we are going today and we are saying onward, I am no longer lingering in this rebellion and this unfaithfulness. What happens? And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, which means my master. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth they shall be remembered by name no more. He will purify us, and I will make for them a covenant, and I will make you lie down in safety. Ladies, God says to you, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Ladies, is he talking about our righteousness, our justice, our steadfast love, our mercy? No. We are in a covenant that is 100% built on the righteousness of Christ, on the justice of God, on his steadfast love and his mercy. Hallelujah. Amen. What a Savior rest easy lie down in this covenant you are loved and you can't do anything about it 
So respond to him. You shall know the Lord and you shall not know him as a master that you are trying to perform for, that you're trying to get an A for. He is your husband God who is inviting you into intimacy and nearness. You are the dearly loved wife. Dearly loved wives have no business being at the doorsteps of other lovers. They have no business wandering off to lesser lovers. Be done, ladies. We are too loved for that. Get away from celebrating what the world celebrates and go off even if it terrifies you. Go to the wilderness. Say, I will live with less. I will fast. I will weep. I will come to you, God, in the wilderness because it is the safest and richest place to be. We have good news. We can spend a whole weekend looking our sin square on and yet leave saying, this is amazing. We're loved. We're loved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you so loved the world that you gave your only son so that we could believe in him and not perish but have everlasting life. God, thank you that you are our creator and our father, our king, our counselor, and our husband God. Thank you that we are your bride, ransomed, rescued, saved, restored. <coughs> do what only you can do, and it is in your precious name that we pray. Amen.